Once again, good morning. My name is Gabriel Garcia, Associate Professor of Public Health from the uh, Division of Health Sciences and Applied Health Research. Thank you all for being here. Um, and October is Filipino American History Month, so happy Filipino American History Month to all of you. <laughs> it's, it's Friday, so TGIF. Thank God I'm Filipino. <laughs> um, so on behalf of the uh, Faculty Senate Diversity Committee and the Alaskara Partnership Organizers under the uh, Center for Community Engagement and Learning, welcome to our Diversity Dialogue. And we have a special guest for our Diversity Dialogue this year uh, since it coincides with uh, Filipino American History Month. And um, for our celebration of Filipino American History Month and for our diversity dialogue, we wanted to focus on ethnic studies. And the establishment of ethnic studies have been one of the turning points in Filipino American history. And so what better way to uh, commemorate and celebrate the, uh, the establishment of Filipino American, uh, of the uh, ethnic studies by bringing in somebody who's actually there who made it all possible to have ethnic studies um, in our, at San Francisco State and various or, um, universities um, in the Bay Area. So uh, before we begin with the uh, introduction of our guest speaker, I'd like to just um, give thank you to uh, many of our sponsors. First, I'd like to thank the Diversity Action Council for making this possible for the funding to make this uh, event possible. Uh, we also like to thank the Center for Community Engagement and Learning for supporting us in all the work that we do. Obviously, the Faculty Senate Diversity Committee, and I'd just like to acknowledge one of our co-chairs here. So, Erin, uh, over there, Erin Hicks, is our co-chair for the Faculty Senate Diversity Committee, so give her a hand. Um, and we would like also to thank um, several Filipino-American organizations here in Anchorage who have been really um, supportive in terms of providing funding so that uh, Professor uh, Dan Gonzalez, our guest speaker today, to be, so that he could be here. Okay, now, so for the main event. So um, when I asked for uh, Professor Gonzalez's uh, bio, I was surprised to see just how long it is because if you didn't know, he's been uh, a, a a teacher and a scholar at San Francisco State University for more than four decades. So as you can imagine, his bio and CV is pages and pages of significant work. But I think, and you know, uh, and more than four decades is a lot. And I don't mean to say that to embarrass him in terms of his age, but to celebrate um, the fact that he has contributed so much to Asian American and Filipino American history and experience. And, you know, in, 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 in Filipino, we call um, somebody who's, you know, an elder, a, a manong. So to me, he would be considered a, a manong of this generation. Um, let's see. So. It was hard for me to pick which ones to highlight from his bio. So I would just first introduce him and say that he is a professor, a husband, a father, an advocate, 
an activist, a musician, a journalist, a photographer. He is somebody that I admire. And I say that because the first class that I ever taken as an undergraduate in back in 1994 at UC Davis, uh, the first class that really changed the way I think and the way I view the world and my identity was taking his class called Filipino American History and Experience. And just to show you an artifact of that class, I brought his reader with me. <laughs> this was the reader that I had back in 1994. It, it's still in my bookshelf in my office. Obviously, this has been updated because there's a lot more uh, literature now in Filipino-American history. We go to DVD now. Yeah, they, now it's digital. And that's the book that changed the way I view things because I didn't realize... So many things have happened here in the U.S. that Filipino-Americans contributed. And so that gave me a sense of empowerment that have taken me in the type of work that I do and the type of research that I do here at the university. Um, especially, I, I'm in, in public health, so when I look at health disparities and health equity, you know, you, you start to think about the context of why those, there are health disparities, especially among people of color, especially among Filipinos. Um, and I also, you know, it's, it's not just me in terms of the effect of ethnic studies, but also I would like to um, acknowledge that my fellow professors here, my fellow Filipino-American professors here, Dr. E.J. David, Dr. Joy Chavez Mapaye, are both beneficiaries of ethnic studies. And ethnic studies have really, all of us, changed the way we engage the community here in Alaska. It was back in 2010 when we first uh, celebrated Filipino-American history here at the university. And we are proud that we are still you know, on our eighth year celebrating this uh, important event. So um, without further ado, I'd like to call on my professor, uh, Professor Don Gonzalez. Okay, uh, I brought two books. Um, I'm going to quote this one a lot. This one's a recent publication by Gary Okahiro. Okay, uh, at least one person recognizes it. This is one that probably won't be recognized because it's almost as old as I am. And uh, it's an end to silence. It's the better of two books written about the San Francisco State Strike. Okay, so this is the one. Uh, uh, actually, we've been meeting a lot with Peter uh, because this is the 50th anniversary of, of the strike right, right now. Anyway, let me get started. Uh, don't be scared of the imagery. Everybody else was back at the time. So I'm talking about origins, intentions, and necessity. Saving necessity, of course, for last. This is a quote directly from 
Gat text by Gary Okahiro. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, I'll just read it out. In 1900, African-American scholar and activist W.E.B. Du Bois delineated that global color line as the problem of the 20th century, which was colonialism, material relations, and racism, discourse, the ideology that upheld white supremacy and non-white subservience. Third World Studies descends from that lineage of anti-colonial, anti-racist struggles. The oppressed and their relation to power, then, are the subjects of Third World Studies. Um, when Dr. Okihiro was researching for this book, he spent a lot of time at SF State, and I had tried to assist him. He was looking for the moment uh, that the, the uh, nomenclature ethnic studies was substituted for third world studies. Because we had said, members uh, who had organized ethnic studies, that our initial demand was not for ethnic studies, it was for third world studies. And third world studies as described by Okuhiro in that first paragraph that I just cited. Okay. So one of the major elements is that it was an identification with people in other nations that had been the victims of first and second world oppression. Okay? And we identified with that. But I have to describe who we were. First of all, let me go back to the picture. This kind of imagery was common at the time, at least on the left. Okay? And this kind of imagery obviously scared a whole lot of people the same way that the Black Panther Party intimidated and scared a lot of people. Um, they weren't alone. Um, the, the Chicano community uh, had the Brown Berets. Uh, the Chinese-American community had the Red Guard, you know, obviously taking a page from Mao himself. Everybody had the Red Book, right, the small copy. Uh, people, <laughs> people had been showing their copies at, at school recently because of the 50th anniversary. And that, that brought street cred, right, having the red book. And you had to have it in the left breast pocket of your field jacket, right? If you're going to be authentic, that's what you had to do. Uh, and really, really crazy people that wanted to be absolutely official had the uh, pin of Mao's uh, profile, right, uh, as well, right? It was a gold profile on red, of course, red. This is not what the strike was about. And this did not turn out to be what ethnic studies was about, and that's what Okihiro actually criticizes. Okay? His position is that we abandoned the original aspect of third world studies when we settled for ethnic studies. So we were looking like crazy through all the library archives. Uh, at the time, the former administrators, including Hayakawa, had, had not yet, uh, the library had not yet assembled all of their material, but, so we couldn't look at their calendars. But we were looking for the specific moment that third world studies was converted to ethnic studies. Moment of that weakness, that tragic weakness. And all that I found was that we said ethnic studies, the students themselves. It was in our original 10 and 15 demands, right? For the, the, those were the objectives of the strike, the 10 and 15 demands. So it was about us. Um, so let's go here. Ethnic studies, turning third world curriculum into ethnic studies, which transpired in the fall of 68 and the spring of 69 at SF State and Berkeley, 
trivialized that declaration of global solidarity with the liberation and anti-racist struggles of third world peoples. It's, this is a tough statement. In that sense, abandoning third world studies for post-1968 ethnic studies can be correctly called identity politics and intellectual segregation. Again, Okihiro. That's pretty tough. Okay. That's pretty tough. But you know what? He was right. He's right. Uh, we had a conference, uh, the Association of Asian American Studies, recently at, in San Francisco. And uh, in the middle of one of my presentations, I was on a panel once again presenting the fact that Asian American Studies was almost 50 years old. And uh, one person uh, with questions from the uh, audience said, uh, you know what? Uh, Okihiro says that third world studies ended, the concept ended when you guys started ethnic studies. And I sort of fended that off by saying, I don't want to directly contradict what, what Gary Okahiro said, but then I went on to describe what was really happening at, at SF State at the time. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on that, so I, I've got it kind of broken down into how we organized around certain principles. And uh, Gary Okahiro does a decent job of covering some of these. Um, and I, I mentioned one area, and it comes up in a moment, uh, where I think he missed a, a major point, but I'll get there. Here are the organizing principles. Inclusion or representation. Um, I can go here, and I don't, I don't know if it'll show up, but I don't want to lose my place. Uh, this is a link to a 22-page article uh, that that uh, defines directly what cultural pluralism is. Well, let's take a look at these top two. Inclusion or representation. This was really motivated by the experience of many students at SF State and other universities, but the strike happened at SF State, so let me describe how it, how it took place, at least what, what the motivations of many individual students were. And that is, uh, they would take history classes, global history, California history, U.S. history, and uh, noticed that there was little or no mention of uh, most people of color living in the United States. We're, you know, we're talking 68, 69 now. And uh, they would ask questions of the professors as to why that happened. And one professor, uh, I remember this individual real well, um, very well published uh, author. Uh, and, uh, and he said, well, we only, we only deal with significant populations when he was asked um, why are there no references to Chinese um, except the railroads, right? And uh, the building of the railroads. And he said, we only deal with significant. And that's enough to tick people off pretty well, okay? Many other people had similar circumstances, similar situations. Um, Filipinos, uh, what was mentioned was the, the Philippine American War, and it was really more like the U.S. War in the Philippines. Um, and uh, that also was not mentioned. And even worse than that, Filipinos themselves, our immigrant parents and grandparents, would commemorate right, the special relationship between the United States and the Philippines that was the result of that war. And so we're very conflicted about these things, right? uh, particularly when we started setting up ethnic studies. This, this, that issue for Filipinos became very prob problematic. 
Self-determination, that one's pretty easy. Self-determination no, and autonomy. Um, what Dr. Okahiro does, though, is he says self-determination is problematic because it means we want to govern ourselves without interference from outsiders, and that could be problematic. Right? Uh, how about useful critiques, right, even by outsiders? Can that be helpful? An obviously answer, particularly in an academic environment, is yes, it can be very helpful, very useful. So you need that. But what he says is, essentially, we retreated from third world to ethnic studies and then concentrated on our segregated sections, right? Focusing inwardly on our own community experiences, right? And looking at all relations from those ethnocentric points of view. And that criticism is correct. That is correct. Uh, I've said in my own classrooms that one of the great mistakes that people who teach ethnic studies all throughout the United States and maybe elsewhere is that they talk about things in terms of us and white people. That's it. It's all binary. Okay. And it doesn't look at internal struggles within our own communities. It doesn't look at polarization within our own communities. It doesn't look like at inter-ethnic strife, interracial strife among people of color. Not enough of that. And Okahiro says there are very few comparative ethnic studies programs and projects like that in the country. That is also true. Okay. But one of them happens to be at SF State. Okay. Um, does, he doesn't mention that. Why do I have cultural pluralism in brackets? And that's because uh, our first dean, we had, we had a couple of deans, but they were just administrators who were only there to, to sign off paperwork. They actually weren't functioning as leaders of the college, or now the college, but then the School of Ethnic Studies. But that first working dean was James Hirabayashi. Uh, those of you familiar with Asian American history and constitutional law uh, might uh, remember that name. Uh, his older brother was Gordon Hirabayashi of Hirabayashi versus U.S. Classic case uh, where the United States Supreme Court uh, validated, uh, in essence, a martial law action uh, incarcerating anybody of Japanese descent uh, in uh, concentration camps uh, during World War II. So James Hirabayashi is the younger of the three brothers, all of them PhDs, by the way, and then, and then Jim's son, Wayne, also became a PhD and worked for us for a period of time um, at SF State. He was at UCLA, uh, Santa Barbara, I think uh, Colorado at Boulder as well, and now he's at UCLA again, um, and been there for quite some time. Uh, Jim here, we actually pulled me aside one day. I was off on my way uh, to grad school, to law school, leaving the campus. I was a lecturer in one class. He said, he asked me a simple question, if you uh, were going to roll everything that we're about in terms of our intention um, and, and mention it as a single concept, you know, rationalization for the offering of ethnic studies, what would it be? And I looked at him and I was kind of surprised by his question. I said, oh, that's easy, man. Cultural pluralism. And this guy's an anthropologist, right? So you know, my saying cultural pluralism to a guy with a PhD in anthropology from Harvard was kind of surprising to me. And he silently walked away and thought about it. And the next thing I knew, it was in a speech uh, that he prepared at the first meeting of 
um, ethnic studies uh, at a national conference for ethnic studies at UW, University of Washington in Seattle. So there it was. And that article I still use to this day to explain the rationale for ethnic studies. It still works. It still works. Cultural pluralism is the reality of American society. Regardless of traditional acculturation and assimilation theory, that has been and is now the reality of American society. But even then, and then again in the 1970s and early 80s, cultural pluralism was argued as defunct, a defunct notion okay, by people who still favored uh, new sort of modernized forms of acculturation and assimilation theory. Okay, so let me finish these off. Community service, that should be pretty easy. You know, actually working in the community. Anti-racism, anti-colonialism, anti-white supremacy, these are all values. Radical social activism, third-worldism, I already described that. And global working class solidarity. People leave that a lot, out a lot when they talk about not only the strike, but other actions, uh, Berkeley, uh, uh, Santa Cruz, uh, Rachel went there, so. You know, UCLA, uh, New York, uh, several universities in New York area, uh, particularly Cornell. Believe it or not, this was, oh, the posters that I'm showing you, by the way, are, uh, with exception to the very first one, from a collection of posters that were done during the San Francisco State Strike. And so this one is one of them. Okay, so we got values, goals, right? Here are the countervailing factors. These are, these are concepts and criticisms that we had of each other, okay? Of each other, okay? Uh, even before we started uh, this uh, project called Ethnic Studies, cultural nationalism, cultural chauvinism, ethnocentrism, you know, same line, right? Male chauvinism, we got called on that, out on this all the time. We still get called out on it now, you know? There were a lot of women who did a lot of work during the strike and the uh, establishment of ethnic studies, and they, they certainly did not get enough credit. Uh, I just feel, I, I, I have problems when they say we did all the work, you know, absolutistic statements like that, okay? Uh, but indeed, they do not get uh, the credit for the amount of work that they did, and I think it's arguable that they did the majority of what we call the, the shit work. Um, it really wasn't shit work, but that's what it got called. Ideological intransigence, people just being vested in a particular ideological point of view. Uh, people were into Mao, they were into Marxism, and then Marxist-Leninism, right? Different versions of that, and they, they'd be talking about the Menshevists versus the Bolsheviks. Uh, there were all kinds of divisions on the left, you know, splintered like crazy. And, and fighting with each other all the time over nothing. These are kind of like acts of faith. Right? Because nothing's really being produced, it's just ideological preference, right? An argument. Nice, you know, uh, for wine, cheese, the occasional joint, you know, but <laughs> not really productive. Glorification of the lump, and I had real problems with this. Um, a lot of people who were, in fact, uh, of uh, criminal tendency uh, made it into the movement because. Uh, in all of their uh, liberal kindness, uh, people glorified the lumpen, and we paid a price for it. Um, it's a whole other story. I probably would get in real serious trouble among my 
uh, formerly radical friends for even bringing that up, uh, if I do it in detail anyway. And then, and this is a big one, this is, I should have put this in major caps, competition for economic and political resources. So I, I summarize Okahiro in this next sentence. San Francisco State and UCB, that's Berkeley, ethnic studies reflect from Okahiro's point of view, the University of Chicago's notions of traditional liberalism, assimilation and acculturation theory, a la Park and Gordon, and he says the abandonment of third worldism. So here, I want to engage you guys in some discussion. Okay, this is, we get to do feedback right now. Basically, I'll take this position. Okahiro is correct. Um, there's material that was written uh, from by Black Studies uh, members uh, who are working on the development of curriculum, uh, even in 19 as early as 1965 and 1966. Um, in 1965, the experimental college was started at San Francisco State. Uh, it's kind of a dim memory at this point for a lot of people, but during that period, uh, Asian universities and especially European universities okay, were very interested in that process where students had leadership roles okay, that paralleled that of the faculty and they were able to actually teach coursework along the lines of their direction of study. So uh, it very much looks like what uh, people who are working on their PhDs do when they do section studies in support of uh, whoever there uh, is on their committee, okay? But this was being done at the undergraduate level. That's what made it radical, okay? It got criticized like crazy. People on the radio would say, what have they done? Yeah, they've given degrees in basket weaving, you know, that kind of thing. And that really wasn't what it was about. It was very challenging, actually, intellectually. Uh, okay. Black Studies courses in the spring of 68, even before the strike, evidence what he refers to as identity politics and intellectual segregation. Indeed, that's what we did, that's what they did, that's what we would all do. And we've continued to do that for the last 50 years. That's reality. Uh, if I were to click on this, you would get Black Studies pre-strike, and it shows you the actual content of their courses from their own advertising. The pedagogical methods and content of ethnic studies projects in general have continued in that direction. Okahiro, however, I should have put a however in there, does not seem to consider economic factors, that is resource allocation, right here, okay, as substantial influence on the development of the ethnic studies project. What do I mean by that? When we start ethnic studies, and you go to the table, and the first thing we got to do is say, okay, how many courses are you going to offer? How many faculty are you going to need to offer those courses, right? This is the way it's going to go. How does that get done? Well, usually, even now, at least a year in advance, right? A year in advance. Um, we discussed things back then in terms of FTE and FTEF, right? Faculty full-time equivalents, okay? The universities still get paid in terms of body count. Um, I intentionally used that term, right? Because that was a term used during the Vietnam War to describe whether or not uh, the U.S. efforts in Southeast Asia were going well. But it also described FTE and FTEF used as the uh, method of determining how much money would go to a given university. Now, that FTEF standard 
went all the way down to departments and programs. So you could, if you could grow your program, you could grow your FTEF, you could hire more faculty, you could hire more staff. Okay. About 30 years ago, after the passage of Proposition 13, right, which was 40 years ago, uh, 1978, okay, budget cutbacks, right? Okay, so FTEF still counted at the university level, but with the budget cutback, suddenly what, what happened was they said, well, we need executive decision-making power. We're going to vest that in university presidents. We're going to vest that in the chancellor. Right? And what that meant was they would have the political directives on where to spend that money. Okay. So when you see these budget cutbacks, and I know it happens up here just as well, okay, the effect is that people who really ought not have that decision-making power, right, that that devolves to them. You're starting to see a version of this happen in the U.S. Congress as well, with greater and greater emphasis put on executive powers, right? It's happening as, as I speak, okay? This has been happening for about 30 years now in both the UC and the CSU systems in California. And you can't undervalue the effect that that has okay, on planning. Right? Suddenly, everybody's interested in marketing, right? Okay. So we're starting to see, we're, we're, we're trying to predict what students might want to be in, interested in, right? And of course, sex sells, right? Um, so what happens? Sociology, psych, right? Uh, they get involved with uh, leisure studies and uh, physical ed, and they do sex courses. And it packs them in. Biggest, biggest room in the, on the campus. It seats 703 people. Suckers packed. You could offer those courses all day and night, and they would still be packed, right? Um, it was competition like that all throughout the university. So by the mid-1970s, oops, oh man. <laughs> yeah. What well, I do not want to see. All right. Okay, let me get out of here. Okay. Why did that happen? I, um, hang in there with me for a second. I don't know. I don't know how is it, that. Is it the network here? No, I don't need the the network actually. So that's why I don't know why that happened. Yeah. Okay, these are, this is that poster collection that I was telling you about uh, that I referred to. I can go here. I can go here. Uh, and I can go PDF. You know what? I'm going to open it up as a, if you don't mind, because I'm going to ask you to inter interact with me on this. Um, I'm opening it up as a Word file instead see what happens. Okay. Let me make it a little bigger. Come on. Come on. So if it if it doesn't work well for me, I start cursing. You know, you know I'm sure some of you may engage in that kind of behavior on occasion. No? I'm sorry. No, no offense intended. I, you know, I don't want to make those kinds of assumptions out of hand. Now, okay, we're back. Yeah, 
Okay. Bootstrapped. What do I mean by that? Remember I said year in advance? You've got to plan a year in advance. But we, we went on strike and said we want it now. Okay. And then they were really clever. They said they're never going to be able to put it together, man. We'll let them have it. Okay. They gave us about a month and a half. They gave us about six weeks. Okay. So there was a great professor uh, who was on his way to retirement. And what they do is they give you an administrative job because it's a higher pay scale. So if you've been politically cool with the president and the academic senate, right, you get one of those jobs. And then you do that for two years and your pay scale is way up there. That's your final pay scale. You get that for retirement, right? And uh, Professor Daniel Fetter, really great guy. I was scared of him, frankly, because he had a reputation of being a real curmudgeon, you know. He looked like a, a handsome, longer-haired, um, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken guy, you know. <laughs> but really, yeah, he was scary. He was scary. I was scared. Uh, the uh, Central Committee of the Third World Liberation Front, I had bugged them for three weeks in a row that we, you know, look, the window's closing. If we want to get this done and something started in the fall, we got to move now. And they, they kept saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. And finally, the third time around, they said, okay, and this is their exact words, get the ball rolling. Yeah. So it was with what? Okay. But somebody recommended, one of my international relations professors recommended I talk to Dr. Fetter. So I did, and he helped us out, and we got it done. He actually held seminars in the evening. He said, after 5 o'clock, because I don't want to be blamed for helping you guys on state time. Okay, so we all showed up after hours, and he said, here are the rules. One, if anybody misses an assignment, then anybody misses representation, you're done. It's over. No second shot. Okay? So he said, you pull your team together, and that's it. Everybody better stay represented, or else they lose. That's it. You all lose. We made it. Okay? We got it done. Um, but what's bootstrapping? Somebody had to pay for it. Nobody writes about this. I think that, that this is how I can tell who's an insider and who really was there and who was not. Other colleges, other schools dug into their pockets and gave us some money. Okay. The School of Humanities gave us money. School of Behavioral and Social Sciences gave us money. School of Creative Arts gave us money. Okay. Uh, there's a fascist woodpecker outside. <laughs> anyway, I'm glad they got the light. You can come up here for another couple of days. You know, um, be in my audience uh, some other time. Okay. There, there are courses of curricular projects that reflect some core elements of thorough consciousness, pedagogical philosophy, and a race and resistance department at SF State, thorough studies, UC San Diego. But it's, it's really travel studies, right? but it's kind of a radical you know, approach to travel studies. Okay, here we go. Your turn. You can get back at me any way you want now. Whoop! Don't go away. Here on this campus, do present and foreseeable future sociopolitical conditions necessitate, notice that I ask this, necessitate ethnic studies programs and projects? Yes or no? Simple. Can I get yes. some feedback? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Okay, everybody said the Filipinos. <laughs> you guys, see, that's, we're getting in concert again, man. That's, we get blamed for that crap all the time. 
You know, they just walk in lockstep. You know. Okay. okay. Why? Who benefits? If you did any form of ethnic studies here, as described, right? Even though you know we've forsaken third world studies, that's not completely true. Okay, but I have to tell you, I don't know if many of my colleagues who actually do anything beyond just defining what the first, second, and third worlds are. That's that's about it. Yeah. Uh, but who benefits? Hello, hello. Can you hear me now? Oh, you're so. You hang out with those guys all the time? You know, just because we fed you, you know. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, well, we have a mutual issue here, man. Um, but why? Who benefits, really? It's good. It's good. Ask him if he can do that here, because I have an itch. He could use some scratching. The, uh, I threw something at him. It's kind of personal. Sorry. Oh, no. <laughs> Are you going to throw something at him? No, don't do that. No, it's okay. No, man. It's okay. Good timing. And, uh, you guys, it, we, we'll get used to it. Just pretend like it's a, it's a brown bear or something. That's normal. <laughs> well, I was telling my wife, the last time I was up here, it was, uh, it was, you know, it was during the summer and the, the sun never goes down, right? Okay. And uh, and I was going, damn, man, how can you? And then they were going to have a four. It was Fourth of July, and they said we're going to have fireworks. You know, so what? (laughs) (laughs) Big deal, you know. So I was standing in a window and looking out uh, towards the the bay, and all of a sudden, uh, an eagle comes down, boom, grabs a salmon, and I said, wow, you know, where's my camera? Uh, And then I kept staring out there. all of a sudden, a moose just walks down the shoreline, you know, and this is like a block from the main road in the hotel, and I was going, wow, this is so cool, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I like that. We're going to go, you know, do that tomorrow, A- after. Okay. Uh, okay, so who benefits? Everybody, but how do they benefit? Yes. You can blame that on me. <laughs> you know, you know, Gabe has he's a, he's got free will. He's got choices. Uh, okay, how about faculty? Yeah, but you know, um, one of my colleagues did a campaign to get ninth grade ethnic studies accredited towards graduation and college credit. You, you know, Allison, right? So. Yeah. So, yeah, and you guys know Allison. Allison Tintiago Cabales. And, um, and when she did that, she got criticized by the local union, teachers' union. Are we going to have to learn this now? Uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. It's like the cops being told, uh, you know, the person has to understand their rights. What? We have to explain it in another language? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that'd be a good idea. Yeah. Well, you don't have any Spanish speaking people on the police? What? Okay. Yeah, everybody benefits, but it's hard to, to, to convince people that that's the case. Okay. Uh, but we can take a look at Alaska Native students' uh, studies, right? Okay. Uh, I didn't do. I didn't spend enough time looking at when it got started. How, how long ago did it get started? 
Oh. Oh, you mean the studies or the GE? The, the studies. Wow, that's really good. That's really good. Yeah, it's only a minor, but that's exactly how we got started in Asian American studies. We, we intentionally did not want to offer a BA, and we actually offered a master's before we offered a BA. But we started with a minor, and it became the biggest minor on the campus, right? Even bigger than English. Even we couldn't believe it. Okay. We said, man, there's a lot of Asians on this campus. But, uh, <laughs> no joke, we, we actually said that. Um, <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> the reason I bring that up is that it's been that long, right, since 94, and now they have a minor, and they got GRE credit now, right? That's a big deal. Remember I said we had friends in administration that helped us when we established ethnic studies? Well, the guy who told me to go to talk to Dr. Fetter was Dr. Urban Whitaker. He was a delegate to the UN, that kind of stuff, right? He helped write legislation for the United Nations. He had all these little mementos from his activities right on his desk. Funny guy. I can't tell you half the stuff that he said that was funny because it's kind of crude. But, you know, he was really funny. He, uh, he was the god, I called him the god of GS, general studies. Okay, this is before they converted it to general education. Because all he did was sign off. So he could walk in there and say, hey, how you doing? You know, we got this new course. What do you think? Oh, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> so we had general studies coming over here. And then they caught up with that. The administration and other schools and departments said, wait a minute. You know, all of a sudden these guys have got all kinds of enrollment. They're getting people... Well, all this, this credits towards graduation, you know, that's not good. Okay, so they came up and they said, no, the only people that are going to control general education accreditation is us. And they said, out of the eight schools on the campus, only four would sit on a committee called the General Education Council. And that animal was created to keep the other four schools out. School of Business, they didn't care about general education. Does School of Business care about GE here? Where they just massive numbers of units, you know? That's, that's what they did at SF State. Massive numbers of units, maybe leaving only about 30 units available for general education stuff, right? So they didn't care. But the other, a couple of the other colleges, or schools did at the time they were schools. Uh, education, School of Education cared. Uh, health. Physical education, leisure studies cared, uh, and there's one other, and it slips my mind right now. But that's where I built allies. Uh, my department and the, my, my school sent me to the Academic Senate because I said that's the only place you're going to be able to win. You have to build that alliances across the board, and that's what we did. And we, <laughs> we then became, um, Asian American Studies had the most people taking credit for GE. And then we could we thought, okay, maybe we could offer a bachelor's degree. That that's possible. Okay. It built the minor. The minor was easy, right? It was only about 20 27 units, I guess, max and 24 units minimum. Anyway, moving on. So, you have a sample of what can work even on this campus because of Alaska Native studies, okay? So try and picture that 
just a set of courses, okay, an organized curriculum that embraces other people of color, right, if you want to do it on that basis, that, that embraces other ethnicities, and that has a global element of consideration. What is immigration, right? Okay. Why, does, why, why are we in a position right now that, that U.S. immigration policy you know, looks like it was developed by Satan? You know? <laughs> How do we get there? Seriously. Seriously. And you, you, you can't fix that. You can't even approach criticizing that without understanding things in a global way. Really important. Incredibly important. You here at this institution have a great opportunity. You really do. Okay. And now free speechers. Right on. Power to the people. Okay. All power to all people. Yeah. Um, you have a great opportunity. Right. You have a model that works. You know it works. It's not simple to expand. There's going to be some cost. Right? There's always a little bit of cost. But do you have faculty that have the capacity to teach this now, at least in some respects? Okay. Do you have faculty that are, that are in areas of the social sciences, sciences, creative arts, humanities, right? That can teach some aspects of this that can cover different ethnic groups, different racial categories, different immigrant groups, okay? Um, you know, I, I just got really hungry last night, and we went to a hamburger joint. Really great hamburger. Um, and I looked at the crowd in there. I'm always looking, right? Who's here? What are they talking about? What are they doing? And there were people from every racial category in that hamburger joint. That's how good it was. Yeah. Um, you have an opportunity here. When we first drove up on campus today, the first four people we saw looked like students, and they weren't Anglo. Okay. Um, it's not only for Anglo-American students that we do these things. My vision uh, at the time uh, of third world studies, of ethnic studies, was that we were about everybody. Okay. And it became very problematic because some of the ethnic groups were much more culturally nationalistic than others. And, and it got dangerous. I'll be straight up with you. The first five years were rocky as hell because some of the departments would allow students to literally run white students out of their classes, okay? making them feel, feel not only unwanted, but actually okay, making them feel threatened physically. Oh, yeah, I thought it was all going to come down. You know, I was in law school at the time, so, you know, you, you take crimes in first year and you take criminal procedure in second year, and I was running it down. You know, this is what's going to happen to you, and that's, this, that's just the criminal part. Wait until you get to see the civil liabilities. Okay. But luckily, we were able to talk people down. But that's not good. It still happens to a certain extent. Okay. Um, you have an opportunity to avoid that entirely because you don't have people siloed that heavily. Okay. You can do a comfortable discussion about how to develop a core of ethnic studies on this campus. Okay. 
And despite the lockstep Filipinos, you know, there could be cooperation among and between. That's a joke, you know. I'm just joking, okay? Don't, don't, don't mess with the food. <laughs> That's an inside joke. Um, if you, if you want to know what's inside about that joke, ask me later. Okay. Third world versus ethnic studies. What form and direction should these pedagogical constructions take? Okay, there's all kinds of different ways that you can do this. I'm going to do this real fast and then quit. Uh, in, at San Francisco State, do, do we have a specific general education criterion. Any and all studying and teaching about people of color must include perceptions, perspective, and expressions of the people being studied. Okay? Of the people being studied. How do we do it? This is general, right? This is all over the country. There's three typical models. The first one is ours, semi-autonomous school college. That's it. We actually, it's unitary locus. We have departments that are dedicated on ethnic basis, right? Okay, it's hard now because look at how many Asian American, you know, Asian immigrant cultures are in American society. It's really hard, just massive expansion, right? Uh, we just hired two South Asians. Um, within the last five years, uh, we hired another two uh, as lecturers within the last three years. Okay, uh, we, you know, we've had Southeast Asians all over the place. We've got what, two Koreans, you know, we've got everybody covered. You know, the original groups, right, were Chinese, Japanese, Filipino. Then there's a department structure with subordinated programs, right, and the programs are based on, uh, once again, ethnic distribution. Um, and third is just programs. A lot, I, I would say the majority of ethnic studies coursework all over the country are really only at the program level. They have very little autonomy, right? And therefore the content is sometimes, uh, I'm not going to say milk toast, but it's, it's not strong, okay? And part of the reason is they're, quote, experience courses, so they have to cover a lot of territory. Okay, in, in singular courses, and that's very difficult to do, right? It, it's very superficial. Okay, and the last thing, general education. Should ethnic studies be general education requirement? Well, you've answered that question with American Native Studies, have you not? Okay, the same rationale applies to ethnic studies program. The same exact rationale. Should it be done on specific course basis? Uh, some campuses do it that way. The experience-oriented uh, campuses do it like that. So you take one or two courses and that satisfies the requirement. And everybody has to take that course? Wow, really? Okay. Um, we didn't go that way. Uh, but we could afford to not go that way because we got lots of students. Okay, we have, uh, we got voted at least twice in the last 15 years, the most diverse campus in the U.S., okay? Kind of easy, you know, you know? kind of easy. Um, should we do it on the basis of content or subject area? And that's how we did it, okay? Remember I told you I got kicked up to the uh, Academic Senate? Oh, and eventually I, I actually had the Academic Senate voted to expand the General Education Council to include everybody. Wow, how democratic is that, right? 
And then, because I did that, I got voted onto the General Education Council, and I, I was on that for about seven years or something. I didn't even put that on that, on that bio, but yeah, it's interesting how things work out sometimes. So here's what it looks like. This is how we did it. San Francisco State American Ethnic Racial Minority, the AERM. Courses approved for the American Ethnic and Racial Minorities requirement should uh, present views of one or more groups of American Ethnic and Racial Minorities, both from the perspective of the group and as an integral part of American society, should encourage the study of values, attitudes, behaviors, and or creative endeavors that acknowledge and respect the dignity of all groups, present a thorough analysis of the historical experience, social stratification processes, Political activism, notice political activism was one thing I really liked about uh, your Alaskan Native um, Studies program, because one course is dedicated to politics. Hey, you think that's important? Maybe. Hmm? Basic cultural patterns, aesthetic experience, and or ideologies, and include one or more of the oppressed groups. Where does that language come from? Remember Okahiro's description of third world? Okay, there it is. When did we write that? The GE Wars started in 1976. This element was approved by the Academic Senate and signed off by the President in 1981. That's a long time ago, okay? A long time ago. African Americans, American Indians, Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders, U.S., Latina, Latinos, and of course Latinx now. Southwest Asian, North African uh, Americans, and people of mixed racialized heritages. That's actually the policy. Okay. ARM policy, uh, and I write this out just to make sure everybody understands it, encourages the development of courses with content that parallels the mission of ethnic studies throughout the university. So it's not an exclusive thing. It's sort of like the difference between Apple right, and, and Windows. Okay. Okay. Microsoft said, Everybody, here it is. Apple said, nah, you know, we're just going to keep it to ourselves. That's why they have a 7 to maybe 10% share. You know, Windows is going to eat most of the rest. Consider the pedagogical practical uh, effects regarding academic content, resource allocation, and territorial conflict, right? Do you guys have a committee like that? Right? That guards against, yeah? Uh, that guards against uh, overlapping coursework in different departments and programs. Okay, we, we have two like that. One just does with course overlap and the other one does with curricular overlap. Okay, and during that tour on the Academic Senate that I told you about, I was on both. Okay, they got really upset when they found out I was on both. They said, oh yeah, that, isn't that a conflict of interest? And I said, well, you know, I don't think so if you can point the, the source of the conflict. And so it took them a year to do that and then I bowed out. But I already, I already got everything I wanted, so it was cool, you know. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> See you later. Okay. <laughs> hey, uh, it helps to have a sense of humor about this stuff. Okay. Okay. The issue is potential conflict, internal. Okay. And here's one of my favorite posters. Okay. I really like this one. Okay. About two years ago, I sat as a panelist uh, on a Refuse Fascism uh, event that was uh, held by the Revolutionary Communist Party. It really cracks me up, man, because uh, I first had interaction with those guys 50 years ago. And the revolution continues, <laughs> but not by much. Oh, yeah. uh, here it is. 
one of my favorite. It, it, it's got everybody on there. You know, militarism, fascism, uh, you know, the uh, posture of the Statue of Liberty, you know, and all that. Okay, I'm done. Let me see what else is down here. But I think I wound it up. Oh, yeah. Uh, I attached as an appendix the context, right? You got to, when you look at the beginning of ethnic studies, you have to put it in context. And, and here it is. What people really don't um, look at much is, the, you know, everybody knows about the, 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 the party. You know, Black Panthers don't refer to themselves as BPP or the Panthers, they just call themselves the party. Okay. So you can get in real trouble thinking that they're just talking about a regular party, all right? And you're not, you're not, you're not an insider, okay? Brown berets, red guard, A I M. Remember this, right? They're a very radical movement. There's a guy named Richard Oakes, who's a friend of mine, and he lived in married students' housing, family housing on campus. And right after the strike, when we were setting up ethnic studies, I said, Richard. Why aren't you coming to meetings? I mean, hey, come to meetings. He said, no, nah, you know, we, we got another thing going on. And I said, you can tell me. I mean, you know, come on. You can tell me. He goes, no, no, I, I can't tell you. It's big. It's really big. But when it goes down, you'll know. <laughs> and a couple months later, they took over Alcatraz. You know, I, I couldn't stop laughing for like a week. You know, <laughs> I said, yeah, you're crazy. Uh, SF State, man. <laughs> Suppression, government persecution, police violence. Oh, yeah. Does it hurt for guys like me that went through that experience when we see what's going on now? Especially the part when they deny that it's going on. Okay. I have colleagues say, oh, we're a long way from fascism in this society. What are you doing participating in a panel like that? Really? I wonder what they're thinking now, especially after the separation of kids from their parents hmm? continue to attacks on, on communities of color, you know, anti-Muslim attitude, you know. Wow, really? Okay. On the other hand, we had a really very liberal Sim summer skill, President Summer Skill and, and, and uh, Smith at SF State actually bucked the former president of the college, Glenn Dunkey, who got moved up to chancellor of the whole state system, right? And so you had three former presidents of San Francisco State arguing over what to do politically about the continuing protests and demonstrations. Now, if you, how many people have seen film of the peace protests, the anti-war protests in 67, 68? Yeah? Yeah the, yeah, the ones in San Francisco and New York, right? Have you seen the, do you remember the, the film, uh, the black, it's in BioWine, of the size of that protest in San Francisco? It went all the way from Market Street up and over Powell Street, all the way down to the Embarcadero of Fisherman's Wharf. That was just all people, whole thing, right? And then, you know, everybody always focuses on the, the summer of love, right, 67. You know what I was saying? Yeah, <laughs> my kids go, and you were there, huh, Pa? And I say, yeah, and your mom was, too. <laughs> yeah, it's true. They lived on, in the avenues. They lived in the sunset, man, only a few blocks, right? Um, you know what I was saying? It's over. It's over, man. When everybody was talking about the summer of love. 
Yeah, it was really the end, you know. Okay, because there was teenagers running away from home and walking on Hate Street barefoot. You know, doggy doing all, right? They're walking on Hate Street barefoot because this was their thing. That's the beginning of Huckleberry House, Runaways, right? The beginning of the really awful drug culture and everything else. Really turned south after that for a long time. So it wasn't all cool. Okay. Anyway, so there's an appendix, and it's all at the end there. And here's how I'm going to end it. This is really what it was all about. Most of the students were not ideological. They were just into justice, fairness. And remember what I said about people being ticked off because there was no mention of Chinese other than the railroad? Right? All they wanted was a relevant education. Okay. Content that was inclusive. All they wanted was some sense of equity, you know, in terms of academic content. That's the vast majority of people. They weren't hyper-radical. They were not ideologically convinced. Okay. In fact, a lot of them say, I always thought a lot of that stuff was BS. And when they said that, I would ask them, okay, what didn't you like about Marxism? And they could actually hold a discussion on what they specifically didn't like about Marxism. And then I turn and I look at everybody else and I go, what's going on on college campuses today? Can most students engage in a discussion about elements of socialism? If you're going to criticize it, if you're going to call Medicare and not understand that Medicare is socialistic, right? Okay. What do you know or not know? Hmm? Okay. Social Security? Okay. Okay. Kids don't want to pay into that, right? Because they're not thinking about what, the, what, what they're going to need when they're older. They're saying, you know, all those old folks like you, Professor Gonzalez, you know, <laughs> you're getting that Social Security. I'm paying for it. No, you're not. I paid since I was 16 into that system. Okay. I think my wife, since she was 15, but of course she's much younger than me. <laughs> Ten days. <laughs> okay, down here in the corner, this is, this is cute. Elizabeth Betty Parent. Okay, if you click on that, okay, because it's the end, I'm going to click on it and see if it, what comes up. Oh, the answer is nothing. <laughs> Come on, you SOB. Okay. Uh, okay, let me get out of here. Go away, go away. Go away. You want to say, yeah, why not? Go away. Okay. Go away. Okay, while I'm doing this, anybody have questions or comments? Please. Let's just keep it above the belt. Anybody? Yes. Could you talk a little bit about Don Mabalin? Oh, sure. Just a little bit. Yeah. How you knew her, how you interacted with her, why she was so awesome. Oh, man, you made me feel the I'm chills sorry. again. But it's cool. Don Mabalin passed away. Really awful accident. But the good thing was she was doing what she loved. She was uh, um, snorkeling uh, off of uh, Kauai. In, in Hawaii, and she had what people believe was an asthma attack. She she would sometimes have very serious asthma attacks, and she did not recover. Uh, passed away. 
she was a 10-year veteran, San Francisco State, uh, in the history department. Uh, much loved and respected, you know, not only for her book on Stockton, which really put Filipino-American history in real historical technical terms on the map, Stockton on the map, where it belongs, you know, from a Filipino-American point of view, uh, but was also extremely well respected for her work around race, racism, history of racism, all that kind of thing. Uh, and uh, it's just a major loss. I, I knew her from FONS, the Filipino-American National Historical Society. Um, and uh, I met her and Allison uh, Tijanko Cabales when they were still an undergrad at UCLA at an Asian-American Studies conference in, the, in like 87, 88, something like that, in San Jose. Um, and I knew they were going to really do something. Just uh, hyperactive people. I couldn't. And in those days, they did hip hop, and I remember, I remember them trying to teach me Running Man. You know, uh, not not doable. Um, she was much loved by her department. I couldn't believe it. Uh, how how well they got along. Uh, when um, when they were, Allison had finished her doctorate and. Uh, Dawn was accepted full ride, man, to Stanford, right? Uh, American history. Full ride, man. So um, she was working on her dissertation and Phil cut it down. And I, I kind of laughed at her and I said, you know, are you familiar with this concept, the wall? Hitting the wall? And, and they said, yeah. And I said, well, you know, you think nobody else hits the wall? Right. And, she was going to make it. It was not a problem. I said, okay, what would you like to do? And Allison, years earlier, had said, I would love to teach at an institution like this one. And I said, we think you a PhD from Berkeley. You got BAMA from UCLA, but you want to teach here? Okay. It's not a research institution. It is now, but, you know, it, it, it was not supposed to be, right, but it's original contract. And they both said, no, we would, we would love to teach here. And I looked at them and I said, well, well you know, there's going to be a retirement cycle coming up. Let's see what happens. Right? And I heard about this open position in the history department. I said, you should try. And I said, I can't do anything. I'm on committees that should conflict of interest, so I can't even put my name on a letter. So, you know, you got to do this on your own. Um, and she, she got the offer. But she, I called her up about three weeks after I had heard that they had made an offer to somebody, okay? And they were kind of looking at me and, you know, you know, winking a little bit. And uh, I wasn't sure. And I said, so, any news? And she said, no, no, you know, how long does it usually take? You know, and they interviewed me. Everybody was, you know, saying it was really great and all that stuff. And I said, you haven't, you haven't gotten an offer yet? No? Well, it just so happened. Remember I told you about the General Education Council? The guy sitting next to me at General Education Council the next day was the chair of the Department of History, <laughs> Rich Richard Hoffman. And I said, hey, so how's it going with the hire? And he goes, I don't know. I, you know, we, we made an offer, a wonderful person. Just everybody's really excited to have her on there. And I said, yeah, who's uh, that one? You know, do you know, do you know um, Dr. Mabala? And I go, uh, yeah. And he said, well, we made an offer, and we haven't heard anything back from her. I said, really? So I took out my phone, I called up Don, 
So there's somebody here you need to talk to. And I get, and he looks at me, Doctor Mabala. Yes. Now, well, we were getting kind of concerned. We hadn't heard. She said, "I never, I never received an offer." And he freaked. He said, "I'll make sure you get it. I don't know what happened. You ain't right now." Okay. <laughs> That's the way things happen, man. I mean, you know, it's a weird story, huh? But yeah, it was real. It was real, and we lost her. Just an outstanding scholar, freaky person. She could bake, she could cook, couldn't eat the stuff, diabetic, right? But she would cook for millions, and they got a little tiny stove. The thing isn't much bigger than this, right, in an apartment. Um, ironically, in, in, in the hate, um, nice pad right next to Golden Gate Park. Ah, uh, just a, a absolutely lovable person. Funny as hell. I had uh, the opportunity to work with her. Uh, we we did you know Mutt and Jeff routines um, for uh, fundraisers, you know, for different nonprofit organizations, things like that. And um, she was just really easy to work with. Uh, did stand up on occasion, just just for kicks. But uh, it's a real loss. She asked uh, Linda and I to be. Uh, they asked uh, she and Jesse, her husband us to be their uh, godparents at, at their wedding 10 years ago. Uh, so it's really rough, really big loss. Not, not just for Filipinos, but for, for American history. You know, she just, I was looking so forward to more uh, production by her. Uh, is there was always a question that needed to be answered and a lead to how it might be answered. She, she would follow up. She would go where she needed to go to get it. You know? Those are rare. Those are really rare. Anyway, um, Betty Parent. Let me. Um, I'm going to overwrite some of this stuff here. So you, I'm, you're, you're getting to see some of my secret research, man. Don't, don't tell <laughs> Elizabeth, yeah, I did that right. Okay, here we go. Come on, come on, come on. What? <laughs> okay, it's not going to work. Okay. Let me just explain it then. Uh, I was talking to Gabe, right? And I said, yeah, you know, um, the chair, the former chair, she retired like 20 years ago. I can't believe it's been that long. But, of American Indian Studies at San Francisco State was Elizabeth Betty Parent. And she's an Alaskan native. And I can't remember if it's Tlingit and Athabascan, but it's something like that. Right? Uh, and she was chair of American Indian Studies for at least, it feels like 15 years, maybe longer. And I thought, you know, that's kind of cool that we had somebody that good. And then I, I didn't realize how much work she had done here, this institution, okay, before she went on to get another one that went to Stanford. You know, when, when the two of them stood together, Don and Betty, you know, it, they, looked, they looked like a, an ad for Heinz ketchup, you know, uh, those gowns, you know. Um, really great people. I miss them both. Betty's still around. 
but gone is gone. Other questions, comments, and then we'll call it quits. Hello, hello, hello. I, I just have. Um, so how how was history taught at your school? How was history taught at SF State? Yeah, as a department. How does that? How oh, does, oh, in Asian American Studies. Well, yeah. How do you? Because it's huge. The department, I mean, the department is pretty, pretty interesting. Um, there, in in poli science, political science, and in the history department, there's a younger generation. You know, from my perspective, younger generation of of faculty that were hired. They're into their senior moments at this point, right? Because they're in their late forties, early fifties. Uh, but their their attitude. <laughs> sorry, yeah, you're not there yet. I mean, what are you, she's looking at me like what? Allison said to me just a couple of weeks ago, I'm still getting used to you. Not you retired, and now I'm the old guy, right? You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, but uh, they have. Uh, they're really good at. Uh, understanding uh, n not diversity because of the sake of diversity, right? But diversity because they're they're they understand the importance of those those stories, okay? Uh, and so, uh, Polly Sykes started this off. Uh, Kathy Emery, who's only a lecturer, right? Uh, but in political science, and she works with the history department on this. She restarted the concept and the activity of the experimental college that was done in the 1960s, yeah. And she runs it the same way, I can't believe it, right? But she runs it in exactly the same way. I just had a meeting with her about a week ago. Uh, really exciting. And so, uh, some people in ethnic studies that don't like the kind of esotericism that some of the faculty get into, you know, this is what I did my PhD in, therefore that's what I want to teach. Okay. Yeah. We get criticized for that all the time. I'm not, and I, I'm not just saying we Asian American Studies or we the History Department. You know, everybody gets criticized for that all the time. But that's the way the system works. You guys know that, right? Everybody believes it's about publication, right? And I think that's for some areas that's true. For science, that's true. Okay. Uh, for some social sciences, that's true. But humanities and creative arts that gets left behind. You know. And, and you see people saying all the time, we need more people with humanities backgrounds. I mean, you know, just commu communication skills, well, duh. What do you think? You know, I mean, how many of us look at, <laughs> we look at people on television that have the responsibility of being communicators and we're going, oh, man, you know, that was just awful. You know, where'd you go to school, fool? You know, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Um, we need that, but we don't pay them for it. What do we do to teachers? All levels, hmm? you know, they're the highest respect category. You know, people wonder why why are Asians so much in the formal education and all that kind of stuff, right? Highest level, ordinate level of society for them is teachers. Right? We don't do that well here. We don't do that well here. Can it change? Yeah. Switch. Yes, it can change, but people have to decide they want to do it. And, you know, I get asked all the time when I do um, stuff in history or political science, what are your two big priorities? That's the first, getting your butt out to vote. That's number one. But what are the issues? And I said campaign finance reform and full funding of public education. Those two things. You know, think about it. 
if we if we did campaign finance reform the way, for example, New York City did it, and if we went statewide with that in California, whoa, you would see many other states follow. I think Seattle does it really well. I don't know about Washington State, but Seattle also does that really well. I mean, there's so many progressive things. Um, and that's why I'm saying about history here and your opportunity to do an ethnic studies program started out now. This is a perfect place, man. Do, do you see them? They have to be related? In, or Polystyrene history or? And that, that you say if it's um, ethnic studies or, or diverse, you know, that, that you need it in the curriculum. Yes. In other departments in order to have a rich, maybe effective. Yeah, the problem is when you start trying to run things as a department, you, you're, you're, the allocation of resources thing becomes a really big issue. Uh -huh. some, some of the programmatic approaches can work. Uh, at, at East Bay, I don't know if they changed it or not, but at East Bay, uh, their Asian American Studies program isn't a specific department, right? It's, it's scattered around and they got different people teaching it into the, the area, even though they're located in other departments. And how successful is that? Yeah, yes, it, it has to have to at least do that. And so then, then the, the other those problem are problematic arrange yes. arrangements, though, uh -huh. uh, because because when the person comes up for review, right. you know, they have to satisfy awesome. more uh -huh. than one set of people, right? Uh -huh. They have colleagues in in two different areas that they need to satisfy, and that's that's dangerous. That's very difficult. Uh, okay. Yeah, the the last big committee that I sat on uh, up uh -huh. until two years ago was the University Tenure Promotions Committee. And that's a two-year tenure, and uh, that's real serious. I mean, we, you know, you look at the criteria not only of the university but of the department itself uh, for moving people up or out, and um, that those split appointments can be really problematic. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, but but if you if you get tenured people to do it, there's much less risk for them, and you may have uh, fully tenured full prof, okay, folks that are capable of doing it. And, you know, I would ask. That's where I would I would move in that direction to, to, to get started. They got the least risk, they got they have reputation, you know, certain amount of credibility. And if they've sat on the necessary number of, of university committees, um, that always helps. Having the input I told you, the way that we went out was developing alliances across the board. Yeah to do that. And for us, it wasn't that hard. Um, in fact, in some instances, I got more than I asked for. You know, uh, no, I'm not. I'm not joking. I, I got in the elevator after an academic senate meeting, and what I wanted was, um, I wanted uh, the College of Ethnic Studies to be able to get six units in this area called Segment Three. It was a nine-unit requirement, and Segment Three was supposed to be a capstone experience where you use a combination of everything you've learned, you know, interdisciplinarity uh, in general education and your major. And um, I thought, yeah, if we can play into that for six units, that segment three would be in really good shape, right? Uh, no, I'm sorry, I was asking for three. And uh, by the time that meeting was done, I, I thought about where we're going with the policy, and I said, I think, I think they just guarantee that we can do six. <laughs> I got in the elevator, and I was trying to figure out do we have enough courses even in the whole freaking college to be able to satisfy <laughs> that six-year requirement, man, you know? We're going to have to make friends here, you know, but yeah.
Uh, it's kind of strange. But, uh, yeah, it can be done. Um, I don't know, just, I, I get good vibes from this place. I mean, you know, don't, don't, don't ruin my, my feeling. <laughs> you know, don't, don't let me say it isn't so. Uh, let's just move ahead and uh, really think of, in terms of uh, um, how uh, and why uh, this campus. You know, you, you want to hear some brass tax talk? California's become too expensive all the way around, right? Uh, cost of education, cost of living. Uh, 25, 30 years ago, when our local enrollment was going down, San Francisco, San Francisco specifically, Bay Area enrollment was going down, people said, let's market to L.A. and San Diego because they don't have enough institutions. They don't have enough seats. You know, they got high demand, not enough seats. So let's market. So they did that. And it worked for a while, okay? until the cost of living in San Francisco over the last 10 years just got completely out of hand, and it's really ridiculous now. It's really bad. Okay, so kids, even 15 years ago, would do the first year and turn around and go home. Family couldn't afford it. You know, it wasn't about tuition, it was about cost of living. You know, it was about cost of living, and it still is now. What's your cost of living up here? You know, does it look like California? Yeah, yeah. You know, there's like a one-bedroom apartment in a decent part of town costs three thousand dollars. Because the average two-bedroom apartment is fourteen hundred bucks for the average two two-bedroom apartment. I talked about ethnic studies, but now we're doing real estate, and it's fine. Okay, I'm just being Asian. No stereotype there. We have no sales tax or state after that. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Pulling a Nevada on us. Yeah. 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 And, and California doesn't do that. I don't, I don't get it. You know? Well, well, you know, we're we kind of shutting that down. There's a big fight going on right now. You know, his, his jeriness is what I call him. <laughs> Another Jesuit educated guy, him and Kavanaugh, you know. <laughs> oh, and me, by the way, I'm also tainted by the black robes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, man, five justices are Catholic now. What? And I'm from the generation that was told, you know, Kennedy, Kennedy will never be elected president because he's bringing Catholic, you know. The Pope is going to tell them what to do, you know. Yeah, that's right. It's true. It's true. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to steal that line. He said trading one black robe for another. That was a reference to Kavanaugh, I think, right? Okay. Oh, yeah. Stepmom's a Polish war girl. Catholic. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Warsaw Ghetto was, yeah. I remember that. You bring it back second year. World history. Yep, yep, yep. Okay. Go easy on the sugar, dude. Anybody else? Comments? I just one other question. Just uh, is about um, so online. No, yeah. I just online education. You know, there's a lot of online oh, classes yeah. going on. And, um, it seems it's happening here too, you know, um, online. What, how, okay. what, how do you deal with that? <laughs> okay, 
San Jose State, you know, Silicon Valley, right? Mm -hmm. They said, we're going to go do MOOCs. We're going to have thousands of people, you know, they'll never have to be on campus. Think of it, we save money on insurance, right? You know, they're not taking up space, you know, you know they don't, no parking, no transportation issues. They'd just be online. I was on that committee maybe 25 years ago. Okay. And it was, you know, computers and electronics and technical communications and all that. And, and, and we're talking streaming was a concept, right? But it was going to be realized real fast. And they were saying, yeah, streaming, man, we'll do this. And administrators going crazy, boy, we'll be able to stream everything. They won't come on campus and all that. And we said, everybody on the committee, older generation, people about to retire, and myself, I was about mid-career at the time. I think I was the youngest person on the committee. But, but we all said the same thing. That stuff is a whole lot more labor-intensive than you understand, okay? It's really difficult to do. Okay. So, you know, we're going to need like three or four assistants, you know, to keep the flow going. It's not like having live-action class, you know. Part of that you can do with streaming, but it doesn't work that way. they got clickers. Do you guys do that? Some you know, too. The rent yeah. for the clickers, you know, 50 bucks a semester or something like that. Now you can use your phone. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Anyway, one of the guys, oh, he was a former... Vice President of Fiscal Affairs at SF State, and Leroy Morishita, Dr. Morishita, Japanese American ancestry, and uh, he took on the interim job of President of Cal State Hayward, which is now East, East Bay, you know, CSU East Bay, and, uh, and he got the full-time job. He's still doing it now. And we were at a graduation exercise, a big banquet, and he was sitting at the same table. We were sitting at the same table. I said, hey, man, San Jose State, they're going all MOOC, what do you think? And we both started laughing our butts off, right? And everybody's sitting at the table wondering why we're laughing. We say, that going to work. Okay, let's see how many people pass the damn courses, right? We had a 70, 60, 70% failure rate, man, you know? And I'm saying, oh, that's a good feeling, especially for freshmen. You know, they're, they're going to hang in there now. You know, we used to lose them in sophomore year. Now we're going to lose them after the first year semester, right? First year, first semester. Right. And they backed away from that, okay, faster than, you know, meeting up with the back end of a skunk. I mean, they just, we never did that. <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not, you got to have the resource dedication. There's, a, there's ways that you could do it, but you can't get, people say, well, look at Khan Academy, you know, why, why does that work? It's already pre-done, man. You know, there's not a lot of live action going on. With a classroom, there's live action going on. Mm -hmm. What I don't like is I've got a couple of colleagues in my department that they're never on campus. There are people who just aren't on campus because they do everything online. And it's possible to do it because they're not doing a cast of thousands. They're doing 50, 60, 70, maybe 100 students, but that's all. Okay, and then they're recruiting, right? assistance. Uh, we call them uh, instructional assistance instead of teaching assistance. Because when you say instructional, that means that they can't be in the classroom teaching. Okay? Because people were abusing TAs. You know, like, oh, you know, you know I'm, I'm going to have dinner, you know, in Reno next week. That's it do the class for me, that kind of mm -hmm. stuff. And it wasn't us, man. It was, you want to know which department was English. 
Sorry. <laughs> uh, they were abusive as hell, those guys. Uh, yeah. Mr. Research, I just wondered if San Francisco State has a research institute like the Stanford Research Institute. We do. Or you uh, share it. Okay, it's an interesting question, and I'll tell you why. The, the CSU system was never supposed to be a research system. It was supposed to be teaching institution. And that started, though, at Berkeley in World War II. Well, yeah, but, but Berkeley is what we call a tier one institution to do research. In San Francisco State, it's a tier two? Or yeah, or even three, you know, originally. Now, what happened what was... Well, it's still tier two, but now it's a research institution. Okay? I'll tell you how they did it. They said, okay, to be a research institution, you have to do a doctorate. And what we can do is we can do a joint doctorate with UCSF. Okay? And we could do it between the school, our college of education. Medical center? Yes. Uh, because they do medical anthropology. Right. Okay? And social science areas like that that are interdisciplinary with, with uh, hard sciences. And medicine and that's how it got started so we started graduating people with joint doctorates with uh, UCSF PhDs. Uh, and and also EDDs no MDs. Uh, well that's not a teaching right. degree right it's just a professional degree okay thank you for coming thank you. yeah be careful with that free speech stuff <laughs> it gets people in trouble yeah Anyway, um, so we have research wings, but they're all done as separate silos. So different colleges will have different research approaches, and they try, you know, when they started cutting back, when Proposition 13 passed in the, in the late 1970s, uh, the educational institutions, public education was the first of the major institutions to get cut back, okay? And it never regained its former level of funding. Passed the same year as the FISA in 1978. They're not related. Uh, well, they're related in terms of the attitude behind them. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It's or part political. I don't know. I really don't know. I've been watching that carefully. But the point I was trying to make is, when uh, when they started cutting back on budgets, everybody started looking around for other alternative sources of funding. Tier one institutions like Berkeley and Stanford, right? We're already engaged in, quote, corporate government partnerships. Yeah, okay. And so now the CSU system and even community colleges wanted to go and do corporate government par partnerships. And we protested that. We said, you know, there's going to be an erosion, right, of academic freedom, of, of you know, the government actually would have financed most of the major inroads in medicine and science okay through public education public institutions you don't want corporate you know messing with that relationship but there it is there it is that's what's going on and it started way back then in the 70s so it, it is really much too much you know part of the institution at this point and that's why um, you know I uh, think campaign finance and full public uh, full funding of public education is an absolute necessity Right. Does government involvement help explain why the uh, superinflation tuition costs? Uh, all universities? Yeah, frankly, it does. Uh, I call it CEO disease. Okay. Uh, presidents want to live the same lavish, you know, uh, lifestyle as CEOs, 
Okay? Because they show up at the same events. You've got to understand where these guys, you know, their social circle, right, is that they go to nonprofits. I've got to quit. Your professors in Russia have been there have a comparable problem of being treated like kings? Kings? Yeah. Not professors, but you mean like university presidents yeah, and stuff? In Russia? I don't know, but, you know, Moscow, you, you could ask Mr. Trump. Uh, Thank you. All right.